0: How do you go about making your voice sound like someone else's? And why would you? I'll be chatting to a bunch of people who can answer those questions and many more as they reveal the dark arts of impressionists. I'm Simon Lipson, and this is Making an Impression. Well, I'm joined today by an actor, singer, pianist, playwright. I mean, it's not fair, Alastair. And he's a brilliant impressionist, of course. Alistair McGowan. How are you, Alistair?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm very well, actually, Simon. Yeah, so far, no sign of anything worrying. So, no, uh, no,
0: yeah. yeah. Con, conf- well, we're all confined to quarters, aren't we? And it's uh, quite depressing. And I know from your point of view, because you were about to tour, that's all been put on on ice for a bit, I guess.
1: Yes, I was just doing the publicity for a, sh- a show, which I've now done for the last two years, actually, which I've mm-hmm. really, really enjoyed doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I go out on tour alongside Jasper Carrot. Uh, we've been doing that for four or five years, mm-hmm. but this is a new show, just me and the piano, my yeah. newfound love of the piano. And um, that was what I was about to do, where I play about 15 short pieces of piano music, everything from Bach to Philip Glass and even beyond Philip Glass to modern composer Jan Tiersen. I say he's young and modern. He's, he's about our age. He's 50-odd. But yes. um, I play 15 pieces, and in between I talk about the piano pieces and also do impression so i always say it's the only show in which you can see roger federer introducing a piece of music by george <laughs> <laughs> i mean it is an interesting mix that isn't it it's
0: uh, and i and yeah. i think i'm right in saying you you're not you know you haven't you weren't brought up playing the piano you you've kind of taught yourself at a higher level for the last three or four years in order to was it was it in order to be able to do the show or just, was that initially just a kind of a passion project
1: Well, very briefly, because I can talk about the piano all day long and I must. (laughs) um, I had always wanted to to go back to playing. I played for two years I was about eight years old. My mother was a very, very good pianist and played forever, mainly show tunes, but she introduced me to a lot of classical music. And then finally, yeah, about five years ago, I went back to playing properly. I'd tinkered a bit. But I just happened to meet somebody on a cruise ship. I was doing a show on the cruise ship, the only, only one I'd ever, ever done. Yeah. I don't think I'd go back again now on a cruise <laughs> ship. And she just heard me fiddling around late one night on the piano there, and she just said, "You've got some talent, you know." I said, "Oh, it's too late for me, Lucia. I can't play now. I'm 40, whatever I was, 49." And she said, "It's never too late." So I said, "Oh, everyone says that." And she said, "I will teach you the minute we get back," and she did. And my immediate aim was to learn enough short pieces by Eric Satie, who's a composer I'd always been fascinated by. And yeah. people probably know his music, even though they don't know it. He, he wrote the famous, most famous pieces is Gymnopédie, which is used all the time as incidental music on television documentaries and in films. And I wanted to do a show about him. And that's the first thing I did. I learned just about six pieces by him and played them in this show that I devised for Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. But then Sony, Sony Records came to see it quite by accident. And they said, would you do us a CD? And I went, uh, I didn't say anything to them, but to my agent, I said, I can only play those six pieces. You can't have a CD of six three-minute pieces. And she said, well, learn some more. So uh, I did that for a year. And then having done that, Charles Brandreth, in fact, was one of the many people who said to me, because uh, Charles lives nearby, he says, you know what you should do now? You should do a show that combines your love and skill on the piano with also your wonderful ability to do these impressions that you've been doing for so long. Now, I think that would do very well. And I thought, you're joking. No one's going to want to see a show like that. But that's what I've been doing on and off for the last two years, and that's what I was about to do.
0: I will come back to it a bit later on, the, the, the show, because I think it's such a, an interesting mix. But what I wanted to do was kind of start at the beginning. Now, you know, I should confess... Uh, you know we've worked together way back and as we were talking off camera <laughs> just before mm-hmm. the show and you couldn't even remember me being on the first series of Dead Ringers which is which is fine because as i <laughs> well, unfortunately as i've said in the, in a few of my podcasts along the along the way here that it felt like a pretty anonymous experience for me because I didn't get many voices. We'll we'll come back to Dead Ringers, but uh, we think we did did you do you did the games up. I'm not sure we ever did the games yes. up together.
1: We must have done that together. I mean don't yeah. don't be offended by me not remembering you doing Dead Ringers funny. because I don't remember who else did it. I barely remember <laughs> myself doing it. And in fact I remember years ago starting out on, on weekending, which is now much derided, but actually was was very, very popular in its time. Yeah, I didn't I did weekending. Like, well, it was like the Now Show with, without the audience. And it was, yeah. it was very good, you know, and it was very of yeah. its time, yes, but it was good. But I did that. It was the first job I ever did, 1989, I think, 1990. And um, I remember the team on The Ones at the time were, were uh, Sally Grace, Bill Wallace, David Tate, and A.N. Other. And then I became A.N. Other for quite yeah. a while. And when I did that job, I remember after five or six weeks on it, being aware that David Tate, who was brilliant and a real guru to me, and Bill Wallace, they'd sit around, and they were probably early 50s then, maybe mid-50s, and they'd say, "Uh, did we do that job together, Bill? I don't remember. Did we do that? I can't remember. Were you ever on the Navy Lark? Sal, did I do the Navy Lark? And I was thinking then, how can you be so disinterested in your career that you can't remember what you did? I thought, how awful. And I thought, I'm (laughs) never going to be like that. Every job will matter to me.
0: I will take you no offence. Um,
1: okay, <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, but yes, the, game, the games that we must have done because I did all of those. I think that's yeah. my show. So
0: I certainly remember doing the last series of that. So I, I probably took it into retirement. So um, I, I take the blame for that. I, I remember doing that with uh, with John with John Colshaw. I'm pretty sure the first uh-huh. series of of Ringers was uh, Yumi Colshaw and initially Kate Robbins, and then I think. Jan Ravens came in at, at some point halfway through. I, I can't remember. I, I've kind yeah. of consigned the whole of that to a, a kind of a dark history. and I don't want to think too much about it. <laughs> but anyway, we, we will come back to that. Let's, yeah. uh, let's go back to where it all started. You're from, you're from Evesham. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. From and
1: Egypt.
0: what kind of kid were you? So were you uh, at school? You know, were, were you the show-off? in the playground were you doing the teachers uh you know were you desperate for attention or were you the the introvert rather like I was I was very introverted but I'd have my little group of friends and we we just do impressions to each other
1: I was probably even more introverted than that at school I loved the lessons I liked learning I liked nearly every subject except mm-hmm. art which I hated yeah and um I was very serious apparently, <laughs> and uh, I loved sport. So that's really yep. where I made friends and uh, endeared myself to people. Was because I was good at all sports, <laughs> as, a, as certainly as a young young kid, and then at uh, high school, yeah, I, I was in all the teams. You know, football and basketball, and I used to play lots of tennis and badminton and table tennis. And everything. so no, I, but I was never. Really somebody who entertained kids in the playground or in small groups. And in fact, when I then went back after having been to university and drama school, so by then I'm what, twenty-four or something, I went back to my hometown where my parents still lived, my sister still lives there now, says my mother. And I remember going to the local pub for the first time in years, and someone said, Oh ali yes, oh yeah, we, we remember you. Yeah, what are you doing now then? I said, oh, I'm a comedian. And I remember their faces, they just went, You I went, <laughs> Yeah. Doing quite well. That's when you and I were doing the circuit together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you never, you what, you doing what? Because I was never the class clown. I sat at the back. I got ten out of ten in my maths. I got A's in my English. You know, I was top, always the top of the tests, and I was on the sports field and never did anything like that. So it all happened after I'd left.
0: But you must have known you had a, a, a facility for doing voices and accents. Uh, you, what, so you kind of in your, in your bedroom, just, you know, kind of doing Richie Benno to yourself? Or?
1: No, again, really, uh, this is a heck of a parallel uh, to draw. But I saw a documentary, well, this must be 20 years ago now, about Fred West. And Fred West's children were interviewed after everything had happened, and I think both the parents by that time had, had killed themselves or died in, in prison. Yeah. But they said, we, we didn't know anything was wrong because you know, you're know you brought up how you're brought up, and if that's what your parents do, that's what they do. We didn't know they was doing anything wrong. They're your parents. Now, <laughs> yeah, it's stupid <laughs> parallel, but my <laughs> mother always did impressions of everybody she met. So when we, my sister and I, started doing impressions of people that we were at school with, we just thought, well, that's what everyone does. Yeah. So we never thought we were doing anything that was special. And even when I went to university, I'd do a few voices and people would laugh at it. And I'd think, well, everyone does that, don't they? Because everyone's mum does that, don't they? Right. So it was only really when I got to drama school that people started, to, or certainly latterly at university, people were going, oh, yeah, you do all the impressions of all the people in your year or your... your yeah. Your I mean, do you
0: remember or- at that time, you know, as, as a kid or as a teenager doing any voices, what were your early your early voices, just, just for your own your own amusement?
1: Well. The only one that I really did two, that I did, three, well, okay, three, three four, four, hey, <laughs> four. 46. Nine. That was, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. So when I was younger, I remember doing the guy off Dad's Army, who was only in the latter series, called Tuffin' Thomas. We had teeth like that, and you say, cut him, mean, red in, him. cut him, in. Him. And I used to do him yeah. uh, around the house when I was 12 or 13. And then I remember in 1980, when West Ham won the FA Cup, and Trevor Brooking was interviewed. My dad and I were watching and Trevor scored what he called a rare edda. And my dad was so <laughs> amused by this rare edda that we were doing our Trevor Brooking impressions for weeks afterwards, going, yeah, it was a rare edda, The ball came across, you know, and I was just there, it was a rare edder. And, uh, I, I don't know he scored goals with me, but it was a rare edder. And that became a thing. But again, I was yeah. never thinking, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And then yeah. I think not long after that, or around that time, my voice broke. And my sister, who loved music, she was really into the music scene. I wasn't. But she she was. I was just chatting one day in my bedroom. My voice was suddenly got a bit like this. And being from the Midlands, I suppose I had a slightly stronger accent than I do now. Yeah. But she said, "You sound like John Peel now. Your voice is broken." And so I listened to John Peel, and that that became somebody else. Who I think uh, certainly when you and I were doing our yeah. Uh, yeah. things on the circuit, it was somebody that you just did. You just everybody yeah. did John Peel. So yeah, indeed, that yeah. was by by accident, you know. And uh, mm. that's now transmogrified, which is another thing I'm sure we'll talk about. But that transmogrified the John Peel voice for me, and so somebody called um. Mike Dilger, who does, um, does the nature things on the one show, and they're always <laughs> looking at birds and go, these, these birds are absolutely brilliant, they're amazing birds, and so yeah, you you yeah. you, you realise after a while there are not just species of birds, there are species of voices, and also yeah. the John Peel goes very easily, as you can probably hear, into Neil Morrison, who's got a very similar sort of Staffordshire thing as as yeah. Dilger, and of course they all end up going into Adrian Childs again, <laughs> to Kim. So there's always these little yeah. pockets of voices. But those were sort of my first ones. Peel, Brooking, Tuffin, Thomas, and dare I say it, Frank Spencer. But we won't dwell on that. <laughs> we, let's, let's not move go on. there. Let's
0: no. that's, that's interesting. So clearly you had a, a, a kind of a performing bug, right? Because you you, you were at Leeds yeah. University, which is where my daughter went, my oldest. And from there, you went to, to drama school. So... Was was this something that just hit you at some point, or was it something you'd kind of nurtured for a while and thought, you know what, I think I'm going to give it a shot?
1: Again, I was very lucky from my parents and, and seeing what they did and imitating them, you know, again, as I said, with the Fred West thing, weirdly. My mother, from as, lo- as young as I can remember being, she was always doing amateur productions, everything that went on at the local society in Eastman she was involved in. Yeah. So I would go along and see them from the age of four, seeing her in South Pacific and seeing her in My Fair Lady and seeing her in Carousel or whatever else, and then the accompaniment that she went into doing the piano. So I was soaked in this idea of stage and performance. She just right. loved it. Yeah. And she'd always wished she'd done it professionally. <clears throat> So then it just was part of me, but my dad was only interested in sport, played everything very well. So in a way, when I started to perform, it was a coalescence, if you like, as my act has always been, of my dad's interest in sport and my mum's interested in interest in, in mimicking. Yeah. So I became somebody who mimicked sports people. So it was yeah. a complete coalescence of their two lives and interests. And when the telly show was happening, the big impression and the early 2000s having them both there my dad died in 2003 sadly but Mm. having them both there was just so special because i was thinking this i think they both knew it they thought you are a product what you're doing is a product of our lives, and that was very very exciting
0: you have more than dipped your toe into the water of things like the Mikado and you did cabaret on straight theater you know art and all kinds of stuff and you've been you've worked with the rsc come on i mean this is this is serious. yeah
1: well, that was, um, that was the other thing which was always, that was always prevalent in our lives, because we lived in Epsom. it was 12, I think, twelve thirteen miles from, from Stratford-on-Avon, and yeah. my mother, from 1954, I think onwards, my mum, or even 1950, had gone to the Royal Shakespeare Theatre to see every single play. So she took us along to quite a few of those when we were still late teens. So again, to, to work there, for me in 2005 or whatever it was, the first night... I was so thrilled to be on that stage at Stratford and knowing what it meant to my mum. She was in the audience. And in fact, the first night of the show I did there, it was the Merry Wives of Windsor, the Merry Wives of the musical. And there was some quite complicated scenery. And I was doing my main first scene, and then I had this song to sing. Big old song. Massive sort of operatic thing. So I stood on this stage and took a deep breath and started singing this song. And the first thing that happened was that I went completely blank because I thought, This is amazing. I'm on this stage singing, doing everything that my mother wanted to do in the place that she wanted to do it. And I went blank. And I realized then that in a musical, people say, you know, stand-up is the bravest thing you can do. Not true. Musicals are the bravest thing you can do as a performer. Because in stand-up, you know what is right. But there is no right. You can do what you want. So if you forget it, you move on. No one knows. No one cares. But in a musical, more than a play, you forget your words in a song. The band doesn't stop the band doesn't they just carry on so you've then not got to remember what you've forgotten you've got to remember what's what they are now at fortunately i did i got back into the song we carried on but then the scenery i i mentioned there was something was meant to fly out behind me it got caught on the rafters and started crunching in front of the audience and blistering and splintering and all this wood was flying around the stage and i came off stage afterwards and all this cast was saying well done for carrying on and i went what they went didn't you see and they stopped the show to redo yeah. the set. And I went, what? And they said, the whole thing was falling around. I said, I had no idea because I was so pleased to be on that stage yeah. that I just did the song. Didn't even notice that the set.
0: It, it, but also it's kind like, of, it kind of brings to, brings to light that, that sense of, you know, the focus, the concentration. And the mm-hmm. fact, as you say, in stand-up, you can be, you can just, you can wing it. If something's going wrong, you can wing it. Find a way out, you know. Yeah. And, and this is what always terrified me about, even dipping my toe into, into acting. I, I was in a double act, which was a, a sketch thing, but it was just the two of us. So, you know, and even then I was terrified. Have I, have I forgotten a line? Is she, what's going on? And suddenly if you've got a, you know, a company of you know, 50 people or something and, a, and an orchestra, ben. that's pressure. Okay, yeah. um, so, let, so you, you got to, you finished drama school. And then you launched yourself onto the comedy circuit. I kind of remember seeing you. I think it was the old uh, the wheat sheaf. Yeah. In in Wardour Street, I think it was. Um, And then Rathbone Place. Rathbone Place. That's it. And I remember seeing you at the Edinburgh Festival in what used to be the the Pleasance Bar, I think, uh, which is now since burned down. But um, I kind of seen you doing impressions and. I wouldn't say I was inspired by it because I had no inkling that I could A, do impressions and B, that there was any route for somebody like me. And I was, you know, i been a solicitor and then I, I was running businesses. So it yeah. never occurred to me that, you know, I could actually do something like that. But you you went into it pretty much from, you know, finishing your formal education and then into stand-up. So what, how did you see that bridge before even crossing it? What was the thing that that inspired you to to take that leap?
1: Well, I've often thought about this since because I watch interviews with other comics, you know, and and they live for comedy. They've always, you know, absorbed everything. You know, if it it was my generation, they've watched old footage of Steve Martin and and, uh, Lenny Bruce and people like that. And now the new generation, you know, they watch their Eddie Izzards and they watch Dylan Moran and they watch whoever else it is, Lee Evans, and they get soaked in that. I must admit, I was never interested really in the history of comedy. For me, shamefully, probably, doing stand-up was really, in those days, a, re- a way of getting acting jobs. And there were a tranche of people in things. Simon Bly was one, I'm sure you remember him. I remember uh, various that, yeah. others. I mean, Paul yeah. Rogan. Lots yeah. of people who really were actors, Monke. And they thought, I think, I must do some sort of performance. And if I do this enough, I'll either get acting jobs through this or this will become my acting thing. And I think that's the difference. Some comics are just born to be comics, and some people act it. And I, if I'm honest, I acted it. And all I was thinking was, if I do this, then I'll get a job at the RSC, or I'll get a comedy film, or I'll get... That's why I started. Right. But then as things developed, I got bitten by it, and then wanted to take it as far as I could. And for years, I hoped I'd get my own series. And I remember Nick Revel, actually, who was a very good friend at one point, and Nick said, when I got my first series on telly in 1999, he said, I'm so pleased for you, mate, because we were starting to think it wouldn't happen. We'd been around too long. And Paul uh, that, Dudridge... That's, that's
0: interesting, because I remember talk at the time, and I remember someone saying to me, Alistair, so good, he's so good, but I think he's missed the TV boat. Um, well, it
1: might have been Paul Dudridge, because Paul Dudridge, who later became my agent and was yeah. agent to Rob, um, Rob Brydon. And also, I think, was sort of part of Sharon Morgan's discovery. But anyway, Paul was a big player. But he said to me, he said, seven years, mate, seven years. That's what that's what it takes, seven years. I said, what do you mean? He said, seven years. You've got to be on the circuit for seven years. Trouble of your trouble is, you've been around for ten. It's not going to happen. Too late. <laughs> and in a way, he was right. That's what it was in those days. You had yeah. to do the groundwork. You had to do the radio stuff. Yeah. And then the telly would hopefully happen. But I'd been around for so long, yeah. So I thought, it, I thought I'd thought i missed the boat.
0: So you were doing the stand-up and... Did you launch as an impressionist or were you thinking, you know, I I can do jokes, I can do other stuff and throw a few voices in? What what was your, you know, what was your USP
1: impression? I tried to do a few. I mean, the the way it happened was that I was at drama school at Guildhall and in those days you had to get an equity card if you wanted to be an actor. Uh, You had to. And the alternatives were you could be a children's entertainer or old people's home entertainer and you need seven contracts or you could go into stripping or you could be a stand-up comic. So of the three, I thought, well, old people's homes, not sure, stripping, maybe, uh, comedy. So that's why I did it. And I thought I'll do my seven shows. And I'd done a review at the Guildhall and done a lot of writing for that, a lot of impressions. And I'd met a fellow there called Simon Cartwright. And Simon was a former student and he did some really good impressions. And I said to him, how do you do this? How do you do this? And, uh, at the time, I just did Russell Harty, who was who was who do called Chatches. The title was Russell, lovely Russell. And um, I did Russell Harty, and I also did uh, Dame Edna Everidge and Rolf Harris, and most of the people who are now part of Operation U2 <laughs> <Yes. laughs> who I work to. But Simon <laughs> told me what to do, and, and so I, he just said, Put a tape recorder by the telly, listen to the voices again and again, uh, listen to the same bit, don't over record, listen to about a minute's worth, work on the voice, try and copy it like a piece of music. And I took all his advice. And then once I'd done this review, he and I did a a show together. We tried to do a double act together, which didn't really work. But then having done another review at Guildhall, I went to the Chuckle Club one night on Rathbone Place. And I had all this stuff in my head that I'd just written for the review. And it wasn't stand-up, it was sketches, really. But I walked in late with a friend from Guildhall, and Eugene Cheese, bless him, who was wonderful and really always very helpful to me, he was on stage as a compter, and he turned around to the door as I opened it, and he went, are you the next act? And, of course, the audience all laughed. And uh, I said, no. And he went, oh, well, never mind. Uh, so uh, here's the next act. Blah, 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 blah. And then in the interval, I went up to him, and I, I said, uh, what did you mean by that? And he said, oh, the, the last act hasn't turned up. We're in Act short." He said, uh, have you got anything you want to do? Just laughing. And my mate with me, who knew about the Guildhall Review, said, do it, do it, Ollie, do it. Just do the stuff you did at Guildhall. do it, do it. So, this lad, Andy Cryer, who I never saw again really, he just prompted me to do it. And I stood up and paraphrased on the spot all these sketches that I'd done in the review, and it went really well. Yeah. And Eugene Cheese came up to me afterwards, which he never ever does. And he said, or did. And he said, uh, OK, I'll book you uh, in a month's time. And you're, I want 15 minutes from you. And I went, I've only got that. And he went, Well, write some the more yeah. then. And so, in a month's time, I did that for him. And he had me on a lot. But it was really, as I say, just. Because I wanted to get an equity card, it wasn't yeah. anything to do with wanting to be a comic or.
0: So you kind of you kind of chanced a, a, upon it. It's interesting actually. I was going to ask you about your process and your technique because it's, it's been fascinating. I've talked to Lewis McLeod, I've talked to Danny Posthill, uh, and you know various other people in the course of this podcast, and everyone has a different approach, and. This is a story, if you didn't remember me on Dead Ringers, you definitely won't remember this. But you called me. This was very soon um, after I'd started. You saw me at mm. the a Heat for the Hackney Empire New Act of the Year competition. Ronnie Ancona was on it, and she, she and I both ended up going into the final. Yeah. And uh, you had seen me, and you called me. I was at my office, and you called me up and said, look, I'm meant to be doing this radio show, Radio 5, I can't do it today. Can you go and, you know, why don't you go and do it? And so you kind okay. of very very generously gave me a, a break there. And then, so then we started, we chatted from time to time. You called me and said, what do you think of this Trevor Francis? <laughs> and so you did your Trevor Francis impression, uh, which was yeah. great, of course, typically, irritatingly. But I, I then said to you, how do you go about, getting an impression together. What what are you doing? Yeah. And you said to me, put a cassette next to the TV and go. record everything and listen to it and listen and listen and listen and just keep getting it in you know trying to get that thing into your head where it becomes a loop. Yeah. When you're doing an impression, when you're learning an impression then because these days we've got YouTube, we've got you know any any number of ways of listening to a new voice. Is that still your process then? That you, you're, you know, you really want to na- know. I mean, Richard Madeley, right now, that was a, a magical impression. No one had done it before. How did you get into that voice? What was the, What was your process?
1: Well, that one was a little bit unusual, actually, because when we started doing the television series, we did our first series. We had four series in the end, so twenty-four programs in that, and six specials, thirty altogether. But the first first series, we didn't we didn't know what we were doing. And nowadays, we wouldn't have got recommissioned because it was a disaster, really. It was pretty poor. But we got recommissioned. And for the second series, we realized, with great consultation from the BBC, who were terrific to us, really, that we should, instead of just doing people that we thought we could do well vocally, this was a visual medium. We should yeah. have had this conversation before we did the shows, really. <laughs> yeah. And they said, try and find people that you will look like, and then go from there so Ronnie you know we were great friends and former um you know we went out together and stuff as you probably know for seven years or so so we we were we knew each other inside out. but she said you should do and she said Richard Mabley because you look a bit like him and he was very big in those days I'd never watched that program never watched it still don't watch television before six o'clock it's just an old thing yeah um so that was why we went towards Richard Mailey and, and also Dot Cotton. She said, you look like Dot Cotton or, or she looks like my mum, Ronnie said, she said, so you're going to look like her. Yeah. Rio Ferdinand was another one. She said, anybody with big brown eyes, basically you should do. Yeah. So that's why we went towards Richard. So I listened to him a bit and I thought, there's nothing unusual about his voice. And I wrote a sketch and I said, all right, I've got the sketch, but I can't do his voice yet. But I just sort of started doing this thing. And everyone said, well, that's it. And I went, yeah, but I haven't even worked on it yet. And I realized that his voice was actually very, very much like mine. And you always have somebody, I think every impressionist has that, they have somebody who they do, and often it's the first person, and it's the person that you actually just sound very much like. And even with character comics, if you think it about it, Paul O'Grady, when he first emerged, was Lily Savage. Now you listen to Lily Savage's voice if you've ever seen it of those old things. It's just Paul O'Grady, but more even more extreme. Yeah. You know, yeah. we know that steve coogan you know and alan partridge are that close i mean i worked yep. a lot with steve on spitting image years ago and i'm sure he won't mind me saying it but they're, they're very very similar yeah rob bryden when he emerged with um, obviously uh what was the thing called in the car he was playing mainly himself uncle brin's mainly himself you know so actually yep. that's not such a good example but anyway that's why richard came richard was just he was just like me so i didn't really ever sit down and listen to richard's which is style of speaking, because it just sort of, it, which is me. And it was, it was, it was very, uh, very easy to do. Otherwise I will be forensic. I will be forensic. And Ronnie will say that she uses that word. And I have twice, three times now played Henry Higgins from uh, Pygmalion yeah. on stage, oh, twice on stage, once on radio. And I have that Henry Higgins thing of being absolutely fascinated by the tiniest, Diphthong or difference in pronunciation, yeah. and that really was one thing I did at university, which really helped me. I studied a little bit of phonetics, and when you've done that, so I did that out of interest because I'd always been interested, as had my father, because he came to this country from India, so he'd lived in India till he was twenty-one, and among an English community, the Anglo-Indian community. But when he came to Evesham and Worcestershire and England in general, he couldn't understand why people said things like twelve instead of twelve or there's a place near Evesham called Elmley Castle. And they all pronounce it Elmley Castle. And my dad kept saying, it's not Elmley, it's Elmley. And he just couldn't understand why people didn't speak properly. So he was always fascinated by accents, but he always saw accents as mispronunciation. (laughs) So he couldn't understand where they came from. He couldn't replicate them, but he was always fascinated. My mum, as I said, always could reproduce them. So that's why I suppose I became very forensic and loved to hear what someone was doing. I noticed on your list, for instance, you've got Harry Kane. Now, Harry Kane is a very interesting voice because for me, initially, I thought, well, this is just a mixture of Peter Beardsley and David Beckham. Yeah. Which, when you've done loads of voices, is how you then start to approach them. You go, yes, who does this yeah. sound like? It's this person. It's like a recipe. If you yeah. have a recipe, you go, well, I'll take a bit of that cake recipe, but I'll leave out the almonds this time or whatever. So, Harry Kane, for instance, you know, you've got Beardsley's mouthshaking, Peter Beardsley, or all like that. So you've got, you got that mouth out, but you've got a Beckham kind of thing going through the back of the mouth. You've got the Beckham accent. He's I mean, from Leighton Stone, I think. Uh, Harry Kane's from Wolfram start. It's very, very similar sort of East London. But what Harry does now, it's a part I find quite interesting, is that I noticed this recently, because not just of Harry, but so many footballers particularly, and now the majority of people, yeah. spend a lot of time around what is known as MLE, which is multicultural, multi cultural language, I can't what it is now, but anyway, it's basically urban, <laughs> urban yeah. English. So you get that sort of urban influence into the language and Harry has it on yes, one sound. Does, only. Yeah. So I'm sure you spot this, but he'll say things that he'll say, um, he'll say, yeah, you know, I wasn't expecting to score today, but like, uh, I was really happy and the ball, like, uh, came across and I was just, uh, you know, I was very happy to be there and like, uh, and he, just, like, this lack is those see? forensic changes, yeah. that forensic observation, which ultimately, is watch see, Tony Blair, I remember, I can't remember who it was now, doing it, Tony Blair, years ago, and it was a very good Tony Blair, some, a, a big impressionist, but I'd always noticed with Tony, the first thing I noticed with him was that I had um, a recording of it, which, as I say, Simon Cartwright had kindly told me how to do it, but on this recording I had, he talked about tuck and he kept talking about the Tuckets for this event. He was shadow home secretary at the time. Yes, yeah. He was talking about the Tuckets. And I was thinking, what are you, Tuckets? What's Tuckets? So I thought, well, it's tickets. So then you realize that every time he has an i sound, he used yeah. to make it into an uh sound. Yeah. And so that, and the impressionist I heard doing Tony Blair was doing a great Tony Blair, but wasn't doing that sound. And I thought, but that's the main, even now, just about a month ago, my piano teacher, who comes from somewhere near Croydon, she says, I want you to do this. And I think, why are you saying, oh, no, I want, I want you I want you to do this. And then she puts the, she changes another vowel somewhere else. I can't think what it is now. But basically what I'm saying is she does what John Major did. And remember yeah. how people used to say, why does John Major say, I want, I want. One of my early jokes, which you remember, or might remember, was that I said, I hope he doesn't apply the same rule to the word can't. <laughs> that was my first <laughs> joke about John Major. Because he always used yeah. to say, I want, I want to make it perfectly clear that what we want in this country. And my piano teacher, who's, I think she's about 30, she does this. And I thought, no one else I've ever known has done this, but it must be something which is specific to South London, Croydon, Surrey area. Yeah, And when you find these things, that they can be just within two or three miles. And that, like my father, I find absolutely fascinating. Nottingham and Derby, I spent a lot of time in Nottingham. And I had to do a Nottingham accent in the play when I was at Guildhall. So I've always been interested in Nottingham accents. And that's the one, that area.
0: It's it's a toughie, that.
1: Well, any of those kind of hybrid ones are are difficult. Nottingham is like a hybrid of Birmingham and Leeds, really, in a way. But once you've heard it, once you've got it, you never forget it and you never mistake it. And I will always notice somebody from Nottingham or Derby. And mainly because there's about four or five sounds they've got, which is so unique to that area. But Jermaine Genius is one who does it all the time. And he'll say, what's happened here is that a ball's come across here. And when he's gone to, to Eddie, what, what's happened here is, and the here sound becomes so yeah. narrow, here. Yeah. And the, he goes, yeah. what, he, what he's doing there and there. Is what he's done there, and what he's doing here, and what he's doing there. I just love all that sort of stuff. But again, for me, that goes from the exposure I had in our day to Henry Normal, who used to do a lot of gigs in those days. And I loved Henry's poetry but Henry was from Nottingham, and he had a very very strong Nottingham accent. Everyone thought he was from Manchester, because he lived in Manchester. And he thought, that's, that's an odd Manchester accent you got there, mate. But actually, he was from Nottingham, and you can hear it all the time, everything Henry says and does. And for me to be exposed to those sounds that he made, reading in poetry. Now I hear that in Jermaine Genus, I hear it in anybody who's from yeah. that area, and you just transpose it. And you think once you've heard it, and identified it, it's fine. That's why I can't do so many modern football managers. It's really... Yeah frustrated me because i can hear the difference between nottingham and derby and between derby and leicester and between leicester and coventry and between coventry and stratford whereas most people just go well it's midlands isn't it but when you put croatia i can't tell you where they're from against you know i know somebody who's from chile when pellegrini was over here i thought yeah what how did you do a chilean accent for god's sake and yeah it just baffled me it you,
0: you still got Roy, oh, of course. It's always Roy. He was terrific, uh, you know. Like Roy, so he's a very, very, you know, very
1: or something like that. But now Roy, see, he's a very, very, very good. But Roy's a very interesting case, if you like a subject. Uh, subject, what, what would you call it? A study, case study, because uh, you know, I think it was uh, Sam Allardyce who got into big trouble uh, as England manager for many, many things. But one of them was for impersonating Roy's. Wotic R, as it's called in the in the twade. That's what it's called. If you can't pronounce your R's and you roll, yeah. it's got a rotic R, a rotic. which I find quite ironic because people who've <laughs> yes. a rotic R can't <laughs> yes. tell you exactly. they've yeah. got a, a wotic R. Call it something <laughs> beginning with W for God's sake. <laughs> but so you think now some people said, Yes, I'm I shouldn't have been doing that, I shouldn't have been making fun of Roy Hodgson. You can't help the way he speaks. But then you think, well, if you or I do it, we yeah. have to do it. You can't oh. not do the rotic R. Yeah. Um, but I suppose years ago, we would have been less sensitive and you did a whole sentence with lots of R's in it, and that would have got the laugh. But yeah. now you do a joke that didn't involve playing on that, but people still know you're doing it the way it is. Yeah, yeah. So, Are you also
0: thinking about not just the little nuances of accent, but also, you know, where's where's that sitting in my throat where is it where's that voice in my mouth are are you breaking it down into those little elements before you then build it all up and kind of fan it out into the big voice
1: yeah definitely I mean apart from listening again and again to that that piece of audio that you've got and i would always stress audio is better than video because the minute mm. you've got a visual stimulus you're watching you're watching the yeah. face the eyes whatever else yeah. that can come in later because sometimes you can't work out what someone's doing with their voice and you go what am i doing in their voice one person i can't do it really frustrates me although actually it doesn't matter because from a national point of view doing gigs on tour nobody knows who he is but in london sadiq khan i find fascinating but i cannot work out where his voice is placed and I can't even begin to do him. I've tried, I can't do it. But the other day, he made me laugh because he said something. He said, uh, I can't say this clearly enough. And he can't say anything clearly <laughs> enough. Said, I can't say this clearly enough. And he just slurs all, 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 all but I can't look out where it's coming from. And in that case, what I need to do is to watch the mouth because I've yeah. noticed his mouth doesn't move at all when he's talking. Doesn't, doesn't, yeah. doesn't move at all. But uh, he's a, he's a
0: yeah. kind of a, he's a gabbler, isn't he? He's kind of you he's can't, a he's little, little inarticulate yeah. kind of oh, sounds. I can't, I can't, I can't he's think a of He's a terrible, more.
1: terrible speaker. But yeah. also, you know, you need to look at someone's attitude is the important thing. I think that's where my acting background, as well as the linguistics that I did at university, my acting background at Guildhall come, came in, I suppose still comes in handy. You think, what is this person's attitude? And one of the people that that really helped me with years ago was Kevin Keegan because I'd, I'd grown up with Kevin here and him interviewed, you know, when he was playing for Liverpool and obviously then he went on to play for England and, you know, and he always had that sort of uh, quite sing-song voice and he was always very friendly and welcoming, you know. And when he became Newcastle manager, there was something else there. And that day that it exploded, you know, and he went, I love it, I would love it, all that. You suddenly yeah. realised then, if I hadn't realised before, that with Kevin what there is is this immense repressed passion and it's that pride about being from scunthorpe you know and having struggled and come from a mining background and having made it big and worked hard and that all comes through in everything that kevin says is that i'm very proud to be where i am i've worked hard i know yeah. what it is to struggle and i know what it is to succeed and i know what it takes and you can hear all that in his voice and you think yeah. you just do kevin keegan and going, oh yeah they've, they've done well haven't they that's not an impression yeah it's sort of half the voice You've got to really think what produces this voice. Beckham, again, another case in point, years ago, before he was even big, you know, I was working on him and um, I thought, what is it about this, this, this boy? And I realized that, you know, again, from my acting background, we were always taught at Guildhall to open your mouth and to speak from here and it comes through in this wonderful deep timbre. But if you close things off, it's generally about being shy. And so when Beckham first came on the scene, you know, he was doing all this stuff and his arms in the air and very, very sexy and sort of proud and almost phallic, like he celebrated goals. His body was so erect. But when I said to people, he's very shy, they went, what? He's not shy. But then you realize when you hear him talking that, you know, for somebody to open their mouth as little as what he does, you know, it shows even now when he's, he's more of a statesman and he's more experienced, he's still... Incredibly shy person, and that results in holding your mouth there. Yeah. And if you compare him with the sort of people that you've probably worked with, and yeah. I I know, well, someone like Boris Johnson, for instance. Yeah. You yeah. know, Boris comes from that background of Eton and he's trained vocally there and he's spoken at debating societies in Eton. He's never been told to be quiet. So his voice comes booming out, booming yeah. out time. Because it comes from down deep. There's confidence for you. And his mouth moves a lot because he's confident. Whereas you know the Beckham's Southgate's quite interesting because he's a mixture of the two in a way. He's, so Gareth's got that sort of same sort of Beckham-y thing. He's actually from Oxford, although it sounds you know he's, he's like he's from the south. But uh, Gareth, well, I think he's from Oxford. But Gareth has that same sort of Beckham thing, and that's another recycling element. But the character is completely different. Yeah. So I could do the same voice for both of them, but it's the character. It's what yeah. makes Gareth confident and has made him a, a manager. Uh, whereas Gareth uh, David is just that shy sort of, you know, yeah. I don't think he have that ability to to dominate men. Whereas Gareth, as I say, has yeah. almost exactly the same voice, but the character is what changes it. So I find this really fascinating,
0: and then I'll tell you why. When we when we did Dead Ringers, one of the things that struck me, I mean, at, at the time I was, you know, I'd been, you know, I'd been in the law and I was running a a legal recruitment business, and that was my job, uh, and. Yeah performing and doing impressions was not my job. And it be, that became really clear as day to me when I was working with you, working with John Colshaw, uh, you know, also working with people like Lewis McLeod was that not, not that I wouldn't say that you all live for the voice, but what you do is you look for things in a, in a way that I never did. So for my, yeah. I used to deal with, with voices was I can hear it. Ronnie Corbett, I can do it. That's it. Very good. But, and I never really got to thinking about where's that coming from in my throat. What am I doing? What's Ronnie about? And it was just fascinating hearing you talk about Beckham and you know what the kind of the motivation, the truth, as it were, of of, of these characters that then imbues the voice with something more. And I think probably that experience of watching professionals who. Really invest in in the art of creating a voice that made me yeah. think. Yeah, well, I'm I'm just a kind of a school, <laughs> a playground mimic. I'm quite good, but I I'm never going to be because I probably wasn't as fascinated by the, the production of yeah. the voice. And and I get from you, and I I've had certainly from from Lewis and Danny Postal that a real a real joy, a real passion in you know in mm. the creation of a voice. I mean, is that do you feel that is that is that because you don't yeah, do okay. in a purely analytical fashion. You're not cold about it. You're, you're, you're genuinely feeling something as you as you create a, a voice and a character.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think a large part of it, I used to say it when we were doing the tele show, particularly, when you had the makeup on and the costume and everything to make you look like that person, you really felt like that person. And um, because of that, I realised that a large part of the impressions and certainly doing them visually on television as we did 20 years ago, was wish fulfillment and you know as i said earlier on i was never the sort of kid who went into a room and made people laugh so it was never a natural thing and even doing my comedy because of my acting background i I could never improvise i had to write it down Mm. so suddenly here i am dressed dressed as jonathan wash and we've got a wig on and everything else now i've done jonathan for a long time so i knew him inside out i like his programs i like me and um but looking like him suddenly i was wandering around the set and I was able to make people laugh straight away. They say, oh, Alistair, how are you doing? And I go, I'm very well. How are you? Oh, are you? And I was suddenly thinking like Jonathan, talking like Jonathan. And i was so much funnier than I normally am. And I thought, that's really interesting. You know, that yeah. suddenly, as an actor, I was completely taken out of the picture and taken over by his spirit. and It was coming through. And I thought, this is great. But the downside of that is getting older now. I mean, this is 20 years ago. Being now mid-50s, I'm much more interested in finding out or having found out who I am and in being me and in living my life and in suddenly developing an interest in the piano and -hmm. in cooking and in gardening and in writing, though I've always written, and all those sort of things. And suddenly the idea of becoming somebody else is much less interesting. So I find it now much harder to dedicate myself to finding a new voice and also because In those days, doing the big impression, we had up to eight million people watching us. Nowadays, you know, even if I do something on the radio or live on the radio, you're talking minimum of maximum of a million, which is pretty good. I'm not interested in putting things online. I just can't get excited about it. But if I do a, a live show, I still want the voices to be as good as possible. But again, you're talking maybe a thousand people when I do my shows with Jasper at most. So it does take away a little bit that pressure of doing spitting image or dead ringers or my own show where if it wasn't good, you know, you'd hear about it.
0: And there was a pressure also to, I guess, to keep coming up with new voices. Uh, it's not just, just, you can't keep churning out the ones you're great at. You have to go and find new ones to be great. at.
1: Jeff Green, who was around again at the time that you and I were, Jeff was Mm. very, very good. Uh, I'm sure he still is wherever he is. I think he was in Australia the last time anybody knew, but Jeff Green was a wonderful comedian at that time. And, uh, the Russell Howard of his day, one might say. But Jeff said two things to me that I'll never forget. One, he said Jeff Boys, who you might remember as well, yes, Jeff was doing Off yeah. the Boys. Now, as Impressionists, it was very rare you were booked on a bill with another Impressionist because mm. you were considered a special act. So, special acts were kept apart. But yeah. once I was booked quite early on with uh, Jeff Boys, who I'd seen doing 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there. And I liked Jeff. I knew him. He's a nice guy. But he went up before me and he was doing his uh, Jack Nicholson, who I did at the time. He did his John Peel, who I did at the time. And he did somebody else who I did. And I stood next to Jeff Green and I said, Jeff, Jeff, he's doing all my voices. What do I do? And Jeff Green said, just go up there and do them fucking better. And yeah. that's always resonated with me is yeah. that if someone's doing something, whether it's an impression or whatever, yeah. before you, if they're doing really well on the spot, your yeah. only attitude can be, I'm going to go up there and do it better. Even yeah. if actually you're not, you've got to believe you are. But he also said, conversely something that really haunted me he said sometime after that he said it's easy for you mate you've just got to do a silly voice and people laugh yeah and you think no actually certainly when we were on the television doing the big impression i said to ronnie ancona you know we've got to do three times the work that most comics have got to do in sketch shows mitchell and webb or whoever is it funny yes great with us does it look like that person good does it sound exactly like that person? And then, is it funny? So we had to score a hat trick where they just had to score a goal. Yeah, and that pressure after a while was uh, was massive.
0: That happened to me a lot. I'd go on the circuit and people say, "Yeah, but you're just you're just copying. Really, just you know." Yeah. I think Do you know what? It's in some respects you can get away with a, a great voice and a, a no joke, but most mm. of the time you can't. So you you have to do a great voice and a great joke, and I, as you said, um, you know mm. you're also having to look like somebody. I guess on stage, you you still got to do some of the mannerisms and some of the
1: physicality
0: yeah, of of the person you're mm. you're doing. So there is that dismissiveness towards impressions as 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 special. Yeah. Do you feel you you kind of, as it were, confessed to finding impressions perhaps less in less interesting as you've aged? Do you think that the the reason you've gone into more acting roles, more musical roles, the reason you've taken on this your piano stroke impressions show was because mm. you you felt that a need to get away from A being pigeonholed as an impressionist and B feeling like just, as it were, inverted commas, just an impressionist.
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, there are some people, there was a guy called Stefano Paolini who no, was doing yeah, some yeah. impressions. Yeah. yeah, and this Coming is, on is on the pretty show, actually and I saw Stefano at an act, uh, a show in Wimbledon. We were both doing it together. And I was at the height of my game then, height of my fame, doing the yeah. Big Impression on Series 4 or something. And there I was booked with Stefano. And he did much better, actually, than I did on the night. It made me think that partly what he was doing was he was doing Simpsons voices and people who I'd never heard of. I didn't watch those programs. so He was, he was 20 years younger than me, I think. And they were very good voices. But what he did was he showed in a way that he was a real fan. And I think as an impressionist, the the reason I did so many footballers when I was starting out you know, people like Trevor Francis. I mean, you know, I, I grew up watching football with my dad. And when football became more and more mainstream and, and more and more popular and, you know, live games and, you know, the advent of Sky TV and suddenly everybody, they were everywhere. I was very interested. That's what I did. So I absorbed all those and I could yeah. just talk like those people because I watched them so much, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But then football started to wane partly because I grew up and, you know, other things happened. But what I'm saying is there are impressions who can just spout things because they watch that thing endlessly whether it's movies john thompson you know can do endless characters he's just he's soaked in it rory can do endless uh, politicians because he's still soaked in that but i suppose the thing that i've found hard now is that i'm i'm less and less interested in popular culture which Mm. is what we make our name with popular culture and i was interested in it every television program I wanted to see what it was what's this about you know now i find most television uh, well, not most, but a lot of television. It's so banal and uh, lacking in intelligence and repetitive and vulgar, and I can't watch it. Yeah. So I've become more and more interested in, dare I say it, unpopular culture. Yeah. And I mean, I listen now a lot to Radio 3, that's my musical interest. And there's a presenter on there who works every morning from nine o'clock until midday called Ian Skelly. And I would say that Ian yes. Skelly is probably my best impression of the moment but I tried that once on stage and of course Radio (laughs) 3 has such a small audience (laughs) no one ever knew who it was and I'm thinking you know years ago I would have made an effort to listen to Chris Moyles on Radio 1 so I could do Chris Moyles could I bear now to listen to what's that fella's name he's actually quite good Greg James so that I so that I knew him inside out no I wouldn't want to do that I would rather do what I want to do and that's the thing as an impressionist you have to be I think I think maybe there's a guy called Josh Berry who's now doing very well and does dead ringers. I worked with Josh about seven years ago at Wimbledon as a function. Yeah. And he did a brilliant Nadal. His Murray, I watched, but I didn't think it was as good as mine. It probably isn't as good as yours, Simon. <laughs> but watching him doing those people, I thought, now you know tennis inside out because he was doing things I'd never noticed and Nadal did, little ticks. And I thought, oh, that's very, very good. Djokovic was yeah. that's very, very good. He's picked up on things. Then I thought, maybe what's going to happen now is that Impressionists, because of the way television has gone, where you've got Sky Sports this, you've got Eurosport that, you've got golf channels, football channels, this channel, people will specialize in certain areas. Put themselves online, which he's done, as tennis impersonator. You get people who I've seen online, I don't spend much time online, but I I saw a few doing impressions of Benitez, and they do just football managers. And I think that's the way it will go now. You'll get this person specializes in this, this person specializes in that, because that's what people watch.
0: Interesting. I, I, we, they, we, I think we share a passion for tennis and, and um, you, I know you do Federer, don't you? Which is an unusual one. Mm-hmm. And I, that would never occur to me to even try it because he, his accent has got, a, he's got little touches of French, German, South African. Uh, how do you even get into a voice like that?
1: Well, I had an idea about Fedra, and it was the idea actually that I wanted to do. And his voice didn't matter so much because it was the idea was so strong. It was based on a friend's answer phone message. I've got a friend who's a trilingual teacher, yeah. And his answer phone message, always for 30 years, has been him saying, "I'm sorry, but Colin isn't here. Please leave a message after the tone, and he'll get back to you." In first English, French, German, English, French, Italian, Spanish, English, French, Italian, Spanish. So each word is. I I'm sorry, Lo siento excuse je, 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 je m'excuse, but may ma me. and it goes on and on like this. And I thought if I could do that as Federer. Yeah. So that's what I've always done as Federer, this routine where he's just going, uh, I played very well, a carbo today, and eight month, hopefully just eh, I can maintain Kuva et that's kind of standard, standards <laughs> of two one niveau survivor eight un for the way I just go boot damage again on Coron de Cat and eighty Sarah B to be standard. Thank you, thank you. Three interviews in one, yeah. So that's what I always did. And the impression didn't matter, but then I started watching him for a different program I was doing a couple of years ago, yeah. And I, it suddenly improved because I realised that a lot of what Federer does when he's interviewed is that he always sounds like he's either on the verge of tears or on the verge of laughter, and it's again is this sort of again getting inside the man, and that's that's what helped it is that. Uh, you realize that he's he's very passionate and always very emotional, one way or the other, and that's what really helped me to get him. And of course, you know, as as do I, that if anybody laughs, it's a great contagious thing. So to do him, I still do that routine, but at some point I'll have to change it. Yeah. And, and if like I do now laughing in interviews, I think it always makes people laugh because you're hearing me laughing as him and he's laughing at himself and all sort those of different things. <laughs> but again, it's still not
0: of course, Andy um, is also massively passionate, isn't he? But somehow, he's, it's that it, the containment. There's always that containment. But there's always a little, you know, particularly when he's lost a huge match, there's always that little, yeah. you know, he's just, and even he, if he, I think he's actually has lost it a few times, you know, yeah, you know, I thought, you know, that I, that I'm trying hard, that kind of thing. And it's, yeah. it's interesting how even somebody as, as contained as that in his, you know, his public persona still
1: lets that yeah. thing
0: happen. Um, well,
1: my, my thing with Murray is, <clears throat> is more having spent some time in the tennis world backstage, not much, but it was yeah. one year I was doing interviews for Five Live and things and, and going back and seeing those interview rooms. They have to do an interview. After every single match they play, yeah, it's in their yeah. context at any level. So can you imagine, okay, footballers, you know, they play 42 games. Well, it used to be yeah. 42, whatever. How many they play now a year? And they might be asked a question, but it's pools, So you don't always see Jordan Henderson. Sometimes it's James Milner. Sometimes it's Sadio Mane, whoever it is for Liverpool who comments. It's not always every time. Um, but they have to mention after every interview, they have to go and talk about it. And I think that's what I hear in Murray, rightly or wrongly, is this absolute tedium of, oh God, um, how do I feel about this match without saying I just feel exactly the same as I did the time I lost last time to this player and what do I think of my chances in the next round? Well, look, they're probably 50-50. That's what Tom Stoppard would say. Rosencrantz and Golden our are dead. What are the chances of this coin landing heads or tails? It's actually 50-50. Please don't ask me any more tedious bloody questions because he's very intelligent, Murray, and he's very witty and he's a real prankster. Yeah. and um, he just doesn't want to be there and I think no. that's what comes across no. from me it's not grumpy it's just yeah. have you any idea I mean the only person I've ever known who would willingly do that about comedy is Lee Hurst yeah. so years ago Lee would come off and after every gig he'd come into the college store dressing room and he'd go well I started off quite well and then you know, I've done that joke about the fish i had done it if you that heard that but that went quite well and then after that I went into this routine about working in the council at guy that went dead all right, but not as well as normal nobody else would do that but Lee did it um, but placement, again, is, is interesting. You mentioned placement earlier on and where in the voice it is. And one yeah. person who for a long time, I don't know why I was so keen to do him. I think it was when he was more on television than he is now. That's probably it. was Raymond Blanc. And I couldn't work out Raymond Blanc's voice. And he had something which I can only describe as like a, were they German helmets in the First World War that had that spike on them?
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And he had this sort of spike, uh, Raymond Blanc, that his voice went through the top of the roof of his mouth. See, a lot of people go like Brian Perkins, who I've done over the years. We've been on Dead Ringers years ago. Yeah, yeah. He used to be the Radio 4 announcer, and he has that almost perfect voice that goes out of the back of his throat, mm. which is how we were taught to speak at drama school. And you hear a lot of actors. Patrick Stewart has a similar thing. It goes out of the back of the throat. And even uh, David Morrissey, the uh, actor from Liverpool, who always sounds like he's trying very hard not to sound like he's from Liverpool. He has the same thing. Yes. But Raymond Blanc had something, and I thought, what is this? And Raymond Blanc's voice, if you can imagine it, actually goes through the top of the roof of his mouth. And I would never known this before. I couldn't work out where it was going. And then you have to send the, vo- the voice through the top of your head like that, or the top of the mouth, it goes right up in there like this, you see? And uh, that was very interesting for me because there wasn't anybody else that I ever spoken like that, that I knew. So this was very interesting I went up like that. And that was yeah. a real revelation of the age of whatever I was then. I can't believe I suddenly found a different way. <laughs> Yeah. A few years so, ago. Yeah. Years ago when I was starting out, I did quite a bit with Harry Hill. We did a show together at Edinburgh we were we were good chums for a couple of years. And Harry was always fascinated by singing, which he went on to do a lot on Burp and everything else. Uh but also by voices, which he doesn't do a lot of elsewhere, at least not a few. But he used to love doing impressions around me. And he did one. I can't well, it was Jimmy Savile, but in those days everyone did Jimmy Savile. Mm. But he did a Jimmy Savile and it sounded everything like him, but it wasn't in the right place in his voice. And yeah. I said to Harry, well, it's good. He said, what do you think? I said, it's good, but you're, you're not making it go through the back of your voice. It's in the back of your mouth. That's where Jimmy goes through the back. Not through there. It goes there. And he said, I'm a doctor. And he said, well, voices come out of your mouth. That's what they do. <laughs> yes. And I said, no, they don't. And he went, "A voice comes out of the mouth. I went, no, it doesn't. <laughs> And we had quite a row and um, and I haven't really seen him since. (laughs) (laughs) But he was just saying anatomically it comes out of the mouth but it doesn't and that's a big thing to realise. Clive James was somebody I used to adore watching and and doing and Clive James had that most incredible voice which used to come right through his nose. There was nothing coming out of his mouth at all. If If you put your mouth finger over, over your mouth and probably sound exactly the same because the whole voice came right down the nose yeah and you, yeah. Just, you can't say that voice is coming out of his mouth it's not it's coming down his nose it's coming out of like that you know down there yeah
0: yeah has your um your voice changed my, my voice has got deeper as i've got older and not that i'm a working impressionist these days but it i, I guess it would limit my access to certain voices in, in pitches that I can no longer achieve. Have you, I, mean, I guess your voice has changed um, from when you have, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, even doing doing your stuff. Do you feel that that has limited stuff that you'd still like to do or, uh, or, or perhaps given you access to stuff that you can now do that you couldn't do before?
1: Well, it is an exclusive for you. I think my voice has probably got a little bit deeper, but I I know it's got hoarser. Yeah, There's a lot of times where I struggle to even have a voice in the day. I, I, and that makes me not want to practice the voices and get new ones because the one time you really screw your voice up as an impressionist is when you're trying to get a new voice. And you frequently get it wrong or you start growling or it puts stress on the voice. You're, you're doing gymnastics with it. And I get a lot of problems now. So I find that I just am less inclined to try new voices because I think that's going to really hurt mm. or I'll lose my voice or my voice isn't there to try with. So yeah. Yeah. it's something singers have. You know, a lot of singers, my wife is a singer, and she used to sing, you know, in Phantom of the Opera, she was a lead a character in that for two years and sang the highest notes and held them for a long time, day yeah. after day, during yeah. the week. But she'll say, no, I couldn't sing like that now. And I go, but you still sing beautifully. And she'll say, yeah, but I couldn't hit those notes anymore. Yeah, And yeah. I think that's the way I feel with my voice is... Certain voices I never did. Andy Gray years ago was massive on Sky. And yeah. um, I, I saw him at quite a few functions in the mid 90s. And he said to me, He said, When are you going to do me, big man? When are you going to do me? Yeah. He said, Nobody's anybody in football until you do them. When are you going to do me? And I said, Well, Andy, rest easy. <laughs> never. And he said, Why? And I said, Because if I did your voice every night of the week on a smoky stage at the comedy store, yeah. I would have no voice within three days. So I'm not going to do you. Yeah. Kinnock was another one. Never did Kinnock. Uh, of that course, got- yeah. Being- yeah. You find a way of doing some smoky voices, but that they generally really damage your own voice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Alistair, we could, we could. well, personally, I could personally carry on this conversation for another couple of hours happily, uh, but I guess you probably need to get somewhere. Oh, mind you, where are you going? It's, you know, you're locked down. But anyway, well, I,
1: I, I- actually have a piano lesson on Zoom at 4.30. There we are. <laughs> well, then I, I
0: can't keep you forever. I've really enjoyed this. It's been great fun. And I yeah. just want to I finish- I believe with- you're
1: 61, by the way. Sorry? I can't believe you're 61. You can't believe i 61. I'll oh, bless you. Sorry. Bless you. I, I've, got a,
0: I've got a special filter, <laughs> you know, to just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's working. Um, Good head of hair helps. <laughs> Good head of hair helps. It does help. What, uh, give it's me a I'm look. T- teach me a voice because uh, I haven't right. really done impressions for 10 years. I mean, not in any any kind of serious way. So yeah. um, I, I just would, I've been asking everybody on on the series to, Give me a voice. Teach me a voice. Yeah. I'm failing, but heroically with virtually every okay. one of them. So, I mean, just just pick anyone that you like doing, and I probably don't.
1: Well, there are certain voices that, you know, they depend on the accent. So I don't know how your Welsh is. Is your Welsh all or right?
0: smashing? smash it. I could do Welsh all day, it.
1: Okay, Farthest. very good. Farthest. Yeah, that no, is good. <laughs> somebody who interests me uh, quite a lot, and it's not a voice that hurts you, but it doesn't mean being quite loud, is Robbie Savage. Robbie Savage. All right. And... The thing, the thing I have to think of with Robbie is that um, he always sounds like either he doesn't believe that the microphone is actually working, so he shouts all the time, or mentally you have to say maybe he was from, I don't know if this is right, he was from a big family, and he always had to get his voice heard across a very big room when he was a kid, but he just shouts all the time. But at the same time, he's smiling. So it's like somebody lose their temper at you, They're really enjoying it.
0: <laughs> well I try it I can try it I'm shouting that's all I'm doing I feel I'm shouting and who Welsh Accent? that's about it that's all I've got well, and I'm, and I'm smiling
1: he's also though because he's trying to get his point across he yeah, sort of yeah. takes fewer words so there you were doing yeah. it but you're too yeah. fluent so it's, imagine you're saying no I think <laughs> right that Wales can qualify <laughs> but what they have to do chappers is make sure so it's like he's across. Try that every word you've got so to get across. He's, them. He's
0: start, he, he can't keep it going, like, and it's he, he has to keep stopping to just to, to make himself so he's even thinking what he's trying to say. He can't even work it out, anyway. Well, I, a, look,
1: like, I but also, placement shots. Robbie is a back of the throat man, back so again, you've got that why as doesn't yeah. to do it. So it's going out the back like that, it's going out, out the he back. just keeps, yeah. <laughs> so you gotta laugh at yourself while you're getting annoyed with somebody else, <laughs> Then you go by the end as well to make so people realize that you finished.
0: Well, I'm, I'm giving myself five out of 10, just, just for trying. Uh
1: but I, I, it was
0: <laughs> um, Alistair McGowan, it's been a real pleasure, a real joy. Lovely to see you again after Thank all you, these years. And um, maybe you'll come back again. I, I, I was writing notes, Furiously, and lots of ideas, and we never got around to half of it. So, if, if perhaps at some point later in the series you fancy coming back, uh, I would be yeah, thrilled sure. to have you back. Fantastic. But for now, thank you everybody for listening to Making an Impression, and thanks to my special guest, Alison Miguel. Goodbye.